Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. The host for this episode is Wumi Adekambi. Wumi immigrated 10 years ago from Nigeria, where she was a post-secondary instructor and researcher and led a youth empowerment nonprofit. Wumi is passionate about people, information, and solutions in that order. Wumi is the organizer and host of Immigrant Techies Alberta, a tech enthusiast group for skilled immigrants who are in or are interested in pivoting to tech careers and startups. Let's join Wumi now as she talks with Erin Russell to discuss the difference between art, design, and innovation. Take it away, Wumi. Welcome to the show. My name is Wumi Adekombi, and I'll be your host today. My guest today is Aaron Russell. He describes himself as a visual scribe, but I'll let him introduce himself and tell us more. Welcome, Aaron, to the show. Thanks, Wumi. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. I had seen the Rainforest logo before because I had illustrated it, and so I, I kind of had a, a liking for, for the logo. By way of introduction, I'm a native Calgarian, and my wife and I now live in uh, Redwood Meadows, which is actually on uh, the Satina Nation southwest of Calgary near Bragg Creek. And we've got five kids. I've graduated in the year 2000 from uh, the Alberta College of Art and Design, which is now the Alberta University of the Arts. And uh, since that time, I've done a variety of things. I was thinking people sort of have a romanticized view of the contingent workforce or the gig economy and, and whatnot. And I've had all different combinations of freelancing or having nine to fives, but, you know, a kind of a medley of filing taxes with a T4 or a T1. But raising a family is pretty tricky. Anyways, yeah, I, I graduated in 2004 with a degree, a bachelor's degree of design in visual communications and have done a variety of production, illustration, graphic design, branding, some marketing activities. And more recently, and I think what brings our conversation into context is I've taken up a role called graphic recording, or sometimes uh, is referred to uh, being a visual scribe. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little more about that. What does it mean to be a visual scribe? I mean, I've seen you in action. Just tell us a little bit about how the magic happens. How can you, how do you in the moment take what you're hearing and create a pictorial representation of it? I mean, it's hard enough for me sometimes to take notes when I'm listening, but you go ahead and actually draw something out while listening. How do you do that? If I had to do it in an elevator pitch, I'd say I'm aspiring to play Pictionary for a living. And whenever we play online drawing games, Jackbox or Doodle or whatever, People can usually tell who I am by my doodles. If I was to rewind back to art school, they the, the faculty stressed to no end of sketchbooking. And I've even hung out with some alumni since graduating. And, and people, you know, they they take that sketchbooking seriously as sort of a documenting your, your thought process. I've even sat with a comic book illustrator, Riley Rosmo, and he had a sketchbook at the dinner table in a restaurant. He was just constantly, it was like drawing was breathing to him. Anyway, so truly, if you were to compare the doodles that I capture now for hire 
to the look and feel of doodles that were just a reflection of uh, visual thinking, they, they largely are quite similar. So I, I have a strong feeling about the degree to which that whole practice involves nature and nurture. But around about, I think, 2016, I I saw that, that, that it was a thing. I saw that there were people who went to events and were capturing um, anecdotes and stories and talking points of of meetings and I thought oh my gosh that's a thing and I felt like I was made to do that and so whether in person you know kind of off to the side with a sketchbook taking sketch notes and people don't really know that I'm doing that or whether I'm positioned at the front of the room prominently positioned and working in conjunction with a facilitator that yeah, you, it's safe to, to to call that graphic recording. And and more recently with COVID, I've been able to pivot and do it digitally live. But that's yeah, essentially I just listen and take notes on behalf of the the group. It 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 is an interesting question about who you know who are you taking notes for? Are you taking notes for the people who you're at the event with, or are you endeavoring to capture things with the intent to to explain them to people who were not at the event. Depending on who your audience is, I would argue, you you adjust the settings in your sort of ear-to-brain-to-hand triage settings. If you're drawing for people who are there, then I think you can use less text and more Easter eggs. If you're drawing for people who are not there, then you're probably going to have to go text-heavy. In my mind, I've thought about it as being and I've seen other people's work, and it, it to me, it's sometimes, in broad strokes, feels like the difference between capture ideas in text and if you have time add pictures or capture ideas in pictures and if you have time add text but it's been really fun you've been engaged in different kinds of projects where you have used your art as a form of innovation so do you want to talk a bit about how art is a big element of innovation especially how in our province we we're we're growing leaps and bounds in that in the in the tech innovation ecosystem. So what place do you see art playing in innovation? How can we create more space? Wow, I I actually been thinking a lot since our previous conversation um, about the idea of art as innovation, and um, I was thinking that I think that the reason why art or design, and we can you know talk about the perceived and differences between art and design, but I think that art is important because storytelling is important to the degree that uh, retention and learning and change and identity is nurtured, changed, evolves, and is, and is robust and strong because of, because of storytelling. I think that visual storytelling is that adjunctive therapy that makes something that's good work even better. I feel like, I mean, perhaps we've all had the experience of seeing a presenter who we know has immense capacity, but perhaps the presentation isn't equal to their their, their knowledge or vice versa. Someone may have amazing Toastmaster skills, but really their content is not the greatest. We all aspire to have like great content, well presented. And for me, that that consists of a balance of data, of animated data sets and objective information, but also storytelling to, to, to secure sort of a mental pathway back into to, to that information. And I've thought about the doodles as being cognitive breadcrumbs that are that subjective way back into the, you know, the granular uh, information. So uh, I'm advocating a marriage of the two. 
where at events you have to have a baseline of objective, you know, process-driven metrics to, to to demonstrate where the consensus came from. But I sometimes think that the the subjective storytelling, the emotional piece is the, the part of it that gets people to care. And far be it for me to suggest having fun at work, but even some even some of the the, the most granular uh, conversations, I, I think, can be spiced a little bit with some pop pop culture humor in the doodles. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot that can be said for for learning through play, right? And there's there, there's a lot of it that you know when we were kids, drawing and doodling was the it was the kid thing to do that they told us to do, and it's the more we grow up, we kind of lose the, the that sense of awe that lets us just take on things freely and play and learn through play. So how do you, have you had occasions where you have helped adults learn through play? That reminds me of where presently I view myself within sort of a continuum of visual practitioners. There is an association called the International Forum of Visual Practitioners or IFVP.org. And I'm still relatively new there. There's practitioners who've been pioneering for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, have written books, have got masterminds and and have uh, agencies and associates. And and so I, I'm kind of a, a new kid on the block, but I, I think that there's there are some distinctions. There's, uh, I think, visual scribes are people who are not necessarily facilitating. There's, there's facilitators who teach visual thinking to individuals in groups. So those are, those are people who sort of advocate for a, a, a democratized mark-making method where what, you want, what they're wanting to do is to, to, to give everybody confidence. Like you said, when we were kids, I mean, my, my son the other day was, he'd just been playing basketball and he was in the living room. And as far as he was concerned, he was like MVP of the, the NBA playoffs and his older uh, siblings Mary Gold and Andy, we were just enjoying his energy, but but he believed that that he was the greatest, and he was chucking the basketball around the living room. I was worried he's going to break a lamp or something. But it, but that that passionate energy and that belief, yeah, I, I think that we lose that with our mark making. Most people, and and so I think some people have looked at the graphic recording style that I employ, and it and it just so happens that I've drawn my whole life, and maybe my drawings of a carton of eggs looks better than somebody's drawing of a carton of eggs but i mean that's totally subjective the, but the 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 point of visual thinking there's so many benefits to it for for all of us and and some of them that i've witnessed and that i i think well here a couple of them one of the one of the first examples of someone using visual mark making and facilitation work with, that had like a practical purpose was a i think it's lisa aurora and she does mediation. She's in the West Coast, and she does like she calls it visual mediation in divorce proceedings. Anyways, and the example that she used was: it's amazing how two par- participants who were in a conversation could have, you know, decidedly different perceptions of exactly the same conversation. And the visuals help to to mitigate that to a degree. So the, the having the the visual, you know, adjunctive therapy to that process, it it increases the the unity and decreases the slippage of understanding. And so if as a graphic designer over the years, sometimes when I'm working on version 12 and 27 of, of a one pager or something, I think, what am I doing here? It can, if if the if the artifact itself is the end deliverable, it can be sort of demoralizing. But if the end deliverable is actually the consensus, 
and a, and a demonstration of that consensus. Because as a group, I feel like where art stands to help make a difference is that when we're mediating between different views, it, the reality is I think that understanding can be the actual deliverable. It may not be that both sides or all parties actually have their voice produce the outcome that they want. However, if you can have a process where people genuinely feel understood and it can be demonstrated objectively that their voice was heard, then that's that's a role I think for art and and de- design in, in in cultivating innovation and and progress and solving wicked problems. You shared a dream with me about the the people you want to bring together in a room, in terms of the energy sector and the environmentalists. Can you tell us about that dream? <laughs> Who knows who's going to be listening? Maybe you can really pull this off and make it happen. Yes. As a graphic recorder, I am a professional fly on the wall. So a, a large percentage of the conversations that I'm privy to, I'm bound in NDAs. And I'm not on LinkedIn talking about it or necessarily showing the work that I want to show. Some of my best work in terms of solving you know, wicked problems and coming up with designs that are great are locked up in NDAs. But that can produce situations where on one day I'm listening to energy and then on the next day I'm listening to species at risk. You know, and the next one day I'm listening to post post-traumatic stress disorder or fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, or all these delicate or, or truth and reconciliation. And then so the, 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 what it made me feel like is when I was young and my parents were getting divorced prior to the divorce when we were in that sort of ambiguous parents were separated stage, I would listen to the things that my mom said and think, I wonder if, if dad knew that, then I wonder if his feelings would change. And likewise, dad would have all these pledges of making things work. And I'm like, if you would just tell that to mom, I mean, are you telling that to mom? So that the, being a fly on the wall has produced a feeling where, yes, I have this vision and I mean, if I was in the energy industry, I probably would get weary of everybody saying that I should pay for everything. But at the risk of offending my, you know, fellow brothers and sisters who were were involved in providing heat and electricity and and all of the the comforts of of life, I didn't have a vision where this is what I wanted. I wanted to have the best group that I had seen that helped to put some meat on the, the bones of the term design thinking. People use design thinking. Sometimes I think they they romanticize it because when some people say d- design thinking, what I hear is a process involving lots of unknown unknowns, and that's highly subjective, can consume a lot of time and money. And what I really think they need is they still want it by Friday and they still want it for a flat rate. And But, but I did a facilitation once done by the design for AHS or D4AHS team that Marley Van Dyke, she, she leads anyways. And they, they were, it was fast, it was efficient and they, they, the, 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 the pace was quick. And so having seen that, it made me think, what would happen if you had a room, all types of energy players, there was solar, there was geothermal, there was biomass, there was, you know, there's another fellow, oh, what's his name? Chris Slabicki. And and he's got some great YouTube videos where he he said like no no respecter of types of energy, but if the, if those players were in the room, but then also some of the, the the land stewardship, environmental people, indigenous people, like we're talking about the same piece of land, whether it's you know energy corridors or uh, species at risk and and things like that, and I could envision a design thinking process where the, those groups are invited to to 
to learn and to understand what's important to everyone else in the room in a short-term, medium-term, and long-term thing. What would be the benefit of that is I, I feel like um, – it would dispel a lot of of the easy, you know, low hanging fruit of polarizing your neighbor and characterizing them as having unreasonable hardline stances. I feel like it would erode that. But ultimately, what I'd be after is the, the idea of when we get together and when we we know more about what we've done, what we're doing, and what we want to do, then we can sort of think and advocate and strategize on one another's behalf. So if you run into a new piece of technology. The implications of that technology obviously go through your frame of reference, but then you run it through the short, medium, and long-term frame of reference of your your partners who are trying to to do things in a in a good way. That that's the vision I had. So you do from from being in all those different rooms, you can tell that even though people perceive their views as opposing, sometimes if they actually talk to each other. Sometimes they're, they're, their values are the same. They're just looking at it from different perspectives and bringing people into the same room through a facilitator using art as mediation. You have found that to, to work in some situations. Is that right? I've had the opportunity, yeah, to create you know a visual record of processes for groups, um, a lot of them through the Deloitte uh, greenhouse process. They, they they have breakthrough by design. But yeah, so for Suncor and Enbridge and TC Energy and LNG Canada, the Kitimat project. But and then similarly, I'm also drawing for Environment Services Canada. Looking at so the idea of that would be fascinating to me. You know, like I think feel like it's in everybody's best interest to have projects that are holistic and that are not just solving, you know, systemic problems in name only, but but truly are getting to the the the, the upstream roots and and the solution to to the problem. Like I not to be totally jaded, but I've seen some tough crowds where I'm drawing and I turn around and say, "Did everybody go home because the crowd is just not wanting to to throw the facilitator a bone and help them out from an awkward silence. And I asked the facilitator afterward, afterwards what they thought that was about. And he, he implied that it was because in this case, there was indigenous communities who in the past had been, had pledges made to them, but but then when budgets change and administrations change, the those promises go by the wayside. So it's kind of this funding, unfunded roller coaster ride of of here promises here one day, gone the next, that sort of erodes at this feeling of trust and, and confidence. Anyways, that that's that's been fascinating. Yeah, let's let's just uh, segue quickly to one of the projects you worked on that you had shared with me, the BLC ninety two project. Uh, you were proud of the outcome of what you were able to do in that sense. Do you want to share with us a bit of how how you were able to mediate that? Well, I yeah, I would love to. I think that what's most special to me about this project, aside from the fact that it was tricky to to manage and get all of what we did to fit appropriately in a time frame and in a purchase order, there was a hesitancy or a skepticism, maybe even slight cynicism up the the up the org chart I suspect in the organization about how visual communications can sometimes leave the end user empty-handed in terms of having a demonstrable impact as opposed to just a subjective you know brand awareness impact so the problem in this case was that there was a, a pair of lawyers from the Wakotalan Governance Lodge at the University of Alberta and they found themselves giving the same presentation for Bill C-92 over and over again, which is a bill that returns inherent rights to Indigenous communities for child welfare. 
So it's connected to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, 94 Calls to Action. They approached me to see if I could make a video or to add some visual interest to information that was terribly granular and and dense, legalese. You know, so it's it, what it was is a 45, 50 minute Zoom presentation that they gave repeatedly. And the the images and the, the motion capture of the creation of those images that we were able to create produced the outcome that they wanted. So whereas previously they some of the assets that they had been created for them couldn't be used for a number of reasons. One of them that was that it was not even substantively correct. In other words, somebody had made a, a flashy video and won some awards for it, but it didn't actually solve the problem. So so they said, anyways, it, and so I, I would love to be back at the art college telling students and faculty about the you know the role of art in society. Here's here's an instance where the the the, the visual you know cognitive breadcrumbs, the illustrations may have has made complex information more digestible, more memorable, less intimidating, more fun, and the feedback that that I get from Corin and Hadley about the the reaction to that work it it it's very validating to me because sometimes when I'm um, thinking of myself as a creative and amongst a group of people who, you know, right brainers or whatever, who create things for their own sake, whether it's dancers or copywriters or musicians or theater companies and that, and that kind of thing. Some, some of the first things to get cut when budgets get cut, um, it, it can, it can be hard and it can feel difficult to monetize your passion and, and, and make you think, well, Maybe my maybe my talents or my passions are, are less of a blessing and more of a curse to the degree that having said passions is sort of a predisposed sentence to 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 to, to be impoverished because you're not selling what people want to buy. <laughs> so <laughs> on that on that point, that that's unfortunate that that's happening. So what do you think we can do as a collective, as a community, as industry? to support the, uh, the arts and to, to, to make it, you know, to make it obvious that it's actually a big p- part of economic development, of people infrastructure development. It's not just something we do as a pastime. How can we do that better as a collective? That's a big question. And I, I would like the opportunity to go away and, and find the leaders who, who talk about different types of education. But in, in my world, I oftentimes think that, to put it in local terms, Alberta College of Art and Design or University of the Arts could stand to use a little bit more SAIT, Southern Alberta Institute of Technology, and SAIT could stand to use a little bit more University of the Arts, meaning you know, the, what, what that looks like is I recently was at a get-together and some friends that I know whose daughter is studying art, they were relating to me a situation that their daughter has anxiety about, which is the same thing that I had anxiety about in third year, thinking about graduating and being able to pay bills and whatnot, was that my my skills with tools were substandard. Like I, my confidence with the, the tools, the software and all of that, all those things that are the requireds on a on a job posting, I, I was lacking. And and so that contributed to her anxiety and as it did mine. And the, the, the message from the faculty in large part then and now is that we're not as concerned about the tools as we are teaching you the theory and the principles. And I I I, I get that, but you know, forgive me and forgive this the daughter of these friends of mine for worrying about not having the required qualifications for work because I got to have work and I got to pay the bills. Well, how that comes out on the other end is you'll get production artists who are working, say, in a, a sign shop or 
or somewhere else. And there's fundamentals about fonts and color and value and intensity, and even some of the visual language inherent in some of those typefaces that that are kind of lost on 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 their work. Are they fast? Yes. Are they efficient? Yes. Do, can you make money off their production files? Of course you can. But are they going to stop to you know to to question whether something could could be better or I, I don't know. I, to the degree that uh, the storytelling, subjective art, feeling piece operates in a vacuum away from the the objective, you know, time is money production environment. I think that it's, it's bad. So I I don't I don't know how to get those groups uh, to, to, together more. The truth also is that with the advancement in digital tools, there's, there has literally been a lot of crossover between the arts and technology. Like artists have been able to leverage a lot of technical platforms to deliver their message better and to a wider audience. So do you see being able to, to make this happen even more? Do you, you think that would be helpful if we're able to to harness those overlaps and use one to enhance the other. Well, it doesn't surprise me that lots of organizations have labs. There's a practitioner named uh, Tanya Gadsby from Fuse Light Creative out west, and I think she's really on the cutting edge of using tools. So, so, uh, so there's a you know a practical day-to-day work that she does for her clients, and occasionally she'll have the opportunity to showcase some of the the work that's going on in her mad science lab where she's innovating arguably for the sake of innovation. That reminds me of, you know, like the art side. It's like, yes, I, I would agree that creating things for their own sake informs your, your tool set for solving objective problems. Like there was this time that the quick story when I was asked in school to come up with a, a particular poster style for a particular, you know, assignment. And I knew that I wanted a woodcut style. And, and prematurely, I was in Photoshop, as it were, not even a vector-based application looking for fonts that were woodcut fonts, and it didn't feel right, and it didn't feel right. Well, what I was doing, I was asking the tool to come up with an idea for me. And so what I ended up doing is I ran down to the printmaking lab, which I knew about because of the structure of the curriculum, and I snuck in and pretended like I was a part of the class, and I had bought a piece of wood, and I did a woodcut, and then I did this woodcut, brought it back up to the design side, and all the designers were like, whoa, how did you do that? And Ever since then, I've thought of saying, you, you know what fonts look like woodcut? Or do you know what actually looks like woodcut? I was like, woodcut. So clearly, there's a relationship between ideas and tools. And on the one hand, tools don't think for you. But I also assert that if you don't know what the tools can do, you're not as adept at problem solving. So, so Tanya, she's doing you know uh, visualization in AR and VR and she's got dynamic digital and in-person graphic recordings where you can scan them and there's dynamic information that are come out on mobile devices it's exciting i think that creating for its own sake is very important because you never know when those ideas and efficiencies will come in handy when when you're trying to to solve problems and if you don't have some wild card ideas up your sleeve I think that your problem solving isn't as good. I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking of Velcro. I'm thinking of <laughs> kind of those those uh, serendipitous sort of things like was it somebody spilled uh, lamp oil on a tablecloth and discovered dry cleaning. You, you did touch a little bit on the little, the friction that's between the fine arts and design. Like even within the art community, there seems to be 
like some are more appreciated than others. What do you think is feeding that? I've had this ridiculous URL that I've had since I graduated. A friend of mine bought a domain because we had to do something online, but the the the, the domain is objectivecriteria.com. And it's like, every time I've ever tried to use that email address, some poor person on the other end of the line is like, you're going to make me write that terrible email address out. But I went to art school. I like to draw. And then I, when I was doing this first year and I was trying to get into the design side and by side, I, I discovered that there was this philosophical divide between art and design so much so that I guess the Alberta College of Art underwent a change back in the day to, be, to then be called Alberta College of Art and Design. And so the design side was photography, visual communications, and I think media arts and digital technology. And then the fine art side was, you know, textiles and printmaking and painting and sculpture and glass and jewelry. And um, the, the question on this short essay to, to, to try to get into the design side was, what's the difference between art and design? And I thought a lot about it then, and I still think a lot about it now. But then I took a stab at it and thought, well, I assert that it's the presence or absence of objective criteria as opposed to subjective criteria. On the art side, it's like, is this good? Do you like it? You know, why, why not? And it's very personal. Over on the design side, why I like it isn't even, is is totally irrelevant. It's, does it solve the, the, the previously articulated design problem and does it accomplish you know, key performance indicators that were on the, the the table and there was consensus about before the things were even created. It it does go back to what you said about creating for its own sake. Yes, yes, and that's it. And and I can tell, like, so to me, just because I do design and just because I create, you know, double page takeout menu spreads in the yellow pages and do all sorts of de- deplorably mundane graphic design. My kids have never seen me pushing a, a palette of paint, and it breaks my heart because deep inside, I am an artist, and I assert that when an artist gets taken over by an idea that is appropriate and is timely, that is a, a blissful process to be captured by that creative process. You don't care if you've eaten. You don't care if you've slept. You just become possessed to execute, but the energy associated with that is absolutely intoxicating. So, of course, I have... I have all sorts of ways that thinking and feeling manifests itself in, in my life. And, and and to be honest, I think there's probably some strong thoughts about whether or not my lived experience, you know, should show up in artwork. There, there's lots of assertions about this graphic recording, you know, what it is, was it what it isn't. And to be honest, I'm learning as I go. I'm probably at the risk of having analysis paralysis and fearing all of my mistakes. I, I know that there's lots of mistakes that I'm making that people five and 10 and 15 years my senior look at the work and go, well, clearly he doesn't know this or clearly he hasn't stopped doing this or clearly he thinks that you know, this is a part of the work. But in my defense, I would just say the, the resolve to step on stage is, is fragile and I can only look at what my peers are doing and measure doses. Uh, otherwise, I just get overwhelmed with I- intimidation about what other people are doing. It's like, to heck with what they're doing. Just do, just do your thing. And if the market responds positively, then count yourself lucky. Let's talk about one more application of visual communication that you have witness that you also work with in terms of art being an adjunct to therapy you have some examples in that sense right the, the use of the term adjunctive therapy i i use it having participated with um some blending of holistic practitioners their practices their patients their tribes and the notion that yes that something that works good can be made to work better with with the addition of something else and 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 I believe that art is actually that subjective adjunctive therapy that can make 
facilitation and consensus building and culture change work better. And so an example of a situation where that's made apparent to me has been, let's say you have a PO and you've got some money and you, you want to accomplish something within your group. Uh, you want to be able to demonstrate the, the something or the consensus that you've built. And so you're going to do an event or a series event or create content or a series of content. And, and and art is a part of that. Well, I've had the opportunity to be invited into those conversations, but I've gotten the feeling and start to get a little bit worried when I perceive that the, the, the expectation of the work that I do is more objective and quantitative than what I know my style is. My style is actually less quantitative and more qualitative. So I would ask questions like, have you got table captains? Have you got uh, ways to capture all of the feedback from all of the, you know, jam boards and digital or flip charts in real spaces, whether it's open space discussions, world cafes. And so to create a subjective sort of anecdotal visual record at the expense of actually having the, the documents and transcripts, I would say, no, I, so I would say start with, make sure that the object, objective quantitative cake is in order. And then if you've got budget, then put the qualitative, subjective, storytelling, emotional feeling icing on top of that. And I assert that the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Um, but sometimes what tools do people use to, to communicate into the future about something that's happened in the past? Largely, they use uh, video and they use animated data sets. And I'm kind of the one pager guy. Like my, my job is to listen and to listen for the sound bites. I'll tell you, if, I, if, if I'm ever at a presentation, I'm constantly listening and drawing, listening and drawing. There's sort of a cache and, and I'm triaging ideas and drawing them as I'm listening to them. But if the speaker ever stops mid-sentence having, you know, with some data on screen and they introduce an idea with something like this, they say, it's kind of like, if somebody says it's kind of like, whatever I'm doing stops because what, what's about to happen after it's kind of like is a story. It's a metaphor, and that story and that metaphor is the are the breadcrumbs back into all of that granular data information that we just don't have time to go into because you know we're in ten minutes we all got to go to lunch and get ready for the next speakers. But 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 by them bundling up that complex idea in a story, and by by me coming up with a visual rep representation of the story, then that one pager is sort of like a, a, a pictorial table of contents for, for, for that content. So speaking about storytelling, what Albara story do you want to tell? Just from having grown up here and all the recent events, everything you know about the potential of this province and what we are capable of, what, what Albara story do you want to tell? <laughs> I think that misunderstanding comes easy. Understanding is, is harder. So I once was invited to participate in a discussion with some friends out east who were talking about Canadian unity. And I honestly, I had a really hard time doing it because I feel, as an Albertan, I feel <laughs> misunderstood. There's a company called Enerchem that produced fuel from solid waste. This is, this is a factory near Edmonton. And there's lots of innovative um, ideas, especially around you know some of those... Well, I, I drove once on uh, Highway 22 instead of driving on the, the QE2. And as I was driving along, I was like, you know, some of those stereotypes 
about pump jacks and beef cattle and and agriculture, I was like, they're they're pretty accurate actually. That being said, I also feel like Alberta is a place where some of the solutions that are being you know talked about in Scotland recently in terms of global GHG emissions and the future and sustainability and the new economy and all these things, that's our speciality. And being characterized as people who are indifferent to global warming and and things like that, I I just I just feel like it's it's not it's not realistic. In in other words, we we have so much in common with other people, and I feel like I mean I get I I had it explained to me once that Alberta and Saskatchewan at one time were very similar in demographics and in population and things like that, but then there was a there was an oil strike, and the fellow who was, who was talking to me about it described you know how things progressed at a different rate and Alberta became Alberta largely because of the energy sector. So trying to think of Alberta in in a diversified way, it is like it does require imagination. Like what are we going to fill all those empty office spaces in Calgary with? Because there's lots of them. <laughs> and and I'm not anyways, I most mostly I feel like when people trash on Alberta, I feel like it's it's like um Calgary Edmonton rivalry. It's like as a Flames fan, I grew up watching the Flames get abused by the the Edmonton dynasty. And so, if if someone from Alberta is you know picking on Edmonton or Calgary, I'll pile on. But if somebody outside of Alberta is picking on Edmonton or Calgary, then I'm like, hey, 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 that's my brother. That's my sister. Like you can't. I I could pick on them. You can't. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. So where can people find you? How can they reach out if if they want an event, they want a visual facilitation for, or they've heard something from this podcast and that has piqued their interest and they want to reach out? How can people find you? A couple of places. I think a good place to go to see visual practitioners, to start with the ifvp.org. There you'll find not just visual practitioners who, in my case, come from a world of illustration, but you'll find visual practitioners who come from, I would argue, uh, the world of facilitation and visual thinking and people who have good answers about how visual thinking can benefit the problems that you're solving. I'm quite a niche tool in the toolkit of said you know, facilitators. If you wanted to see the kind of stuff that I, if you go to the, the URL conferencedoodles.com, there isn't a website there now because it's a long story. I got in a fight with GoDaddy, but I just forward that URL to my Vimeo page, which is vimeo.com slash confdude, C-O-N-F-D-O-O-D, confdude. So, and and I like the Vimeo page because it's got examples of different kinds of work. Oftentimes, if I talk to people and I hear about the kind of problems that they're wanting to solve, I then can tailor a suite of examples of pieces of visual content to, to, to sort of ask some more diagnostic questions about, is it more like this? Is it less like this? Are you thinking something like this, something like this? And get to the point where it's like either it's a good fit for me or I refer out to other you know, practitioners, other, other content makers. And I guess they can, they can find you on LinkedIn as well. Yeah, I love, I, I, I deleted my Facebook. I'm, I'm tagging out on there. For for various reasons, so so I, I probably I'm probably too more casual on LinkedIn than I I ought to be because it's like I have this vacuum in terms of what I used to do on Facebook. Honestly, I'm I'm now doing on LinkedIn, but whatever. That's what that's what it is. Wow, it's been so great <laughs> chatting with you, Aaron. Thank you so much for being our guest today. I appreciate the opportunity to, to think out loud. Thanks, Wanmi. 
If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode is brought to you by Community Now Magazine. Engage, inspire, educate together. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.